I am loving these graphics that Mike came up with. Um, if you don't know, Mike, can you do this? Mike is the creative genius behind most of our graphics, and he did a fantastic job with this one. I love everything about it. Um, one of the things that draws my attention, and one of the things I really appreciate is that orange tree. I love that. Uh, it's perfect for the series that we're in. We're in a series called The God of the Misfits, and that tree really represents Matthew. It really represents the people we're going to talk about today, Joseph and Mary. It represents the people we're going to talk about next week, the Magi. But also, as I was thinking about this being the 10-year anniversary of um, this misfit church, it represents us. And I was thinking back, and I was thinking back to 12 years ago. 12 years ago, I was coming to grips with the fact that I was being called out of a church, a very unique church, that I had been called to 12 years prior. And I felt like such a misfit because I knew I was being called out, but I didn't know what I was being called to. And many of you, we were on this journey together. Where do you fit? You know, where do you fit when you can see that you can make a biblical case for infant baptism and you can make a biblical case of waiting until you're baptized until you are making that decision for yourself? Where do you go? Where do you go when you value traditional elements like the Lord's Prayer and the hymns and you value the best of the new? Where do you go? Where do you go when you're too charismatic for the evangelicals and too evangelical for the charismatics? That one got a laugh the first hour, too, and I don't understand why, but <laughs> it's just reality for me. Uh, you know, where do you go when you can see that there was value in things that Luther said, and there's value in things that Wesley said, and there's value in things that Calvin said, and there's value in things that many of the popes said, and you don't believe that any of those people should get the last word? Where do you go? Where do you go when you truly believe in the depth of your being that if I bring the highlighted passages in the Bible that I've highlighted and you bring the passages in the Bible that you've highlighted and we come together and I listen to you and you listen to me, we can both learn. Where do you go? Well, our search for the home, a church home that would welcome a church like that led me to a conversation with a man I had never met before, Mark Stromberg. He introduced himself earlier. Um, and it led me into uh, discussions with a denomination that I had never been a part of. And I'm so thankful that uh, that denomination welcomed us in as a misfit group of people. Well, let's talk about this week. Last week, we launched a brand new series called The God of the Misfits. And what we're going to be doing in this series, what we're going to continue to do this week, is we're going to be looking into a carefully vetted first-hand account of some miraculous things that happened 2,000 years ago. And the guy who recorded these things, his name was Matthew. We've been digging into his writings. We've, uh, in your notes, we've put a, a place where you can take notes. So we encourage you to take that out as, as we dive in this morning. Here's the first thing that we think is noteworthy, and that is this. Matthew highlights misfit stories that most people would have hidden. He highlights them. You know, I think about the news and the things that have been coming out, the things that have been hidden, the things that politicians and entertainment folks and, and those who had influence have been hiding for all these years. And then I think about Matthew, and I think about he did the opposite. He's shown a spotlight on things that most people would have hidden in fact, we talked about this last week, in the only two places where Matthew mentions himself by name, he shines a spotlight on the fact that he was a misfit, that he had done things that, that, that put him as an outsider 
to the very people he was trying to convince that they should listen to him about Jesus. Matthew wasn't the kind of person that you'd expect the long-awaited Savior of the world to invite into his inner circle. Matthew's choices had made him a misfit. And here's why. There's a place to write this in your notes. Matthew became a misfit by choosing the wrong path. He had made things, he had made choices that he later regretted. He had made this life decision that put him on the wrong path. And last week, we extended a sincere invitation to you. If you have things in your life that you really regret, if you've made mistakes, done things that you're ashamed of, if your plans didn't work out like you planned, welcome home. Welcome home. We've all got aspects of that in our life. But what we're going to do as we turn the corner this week is just as we saw that Matthew was a misfit because of things that he had done wrong, today we're going to look at somebody who this person became a misfit for doing the right thing, for doing the right thing. There's a place to write this in your notes. Mary and Joseph, they became misfits by choosing to take the high road. They became misfits by choosing to take the high road. So let's dig in. Matthew chapter 1. This is what, uh, where we're going to be spending our time today. As we're opening there, I want to let you know if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free each and every week. We keep a stack of them there at the table. We'd love for you to take one home with you today. All right, well, we're going to start with verse 16, which is a verse that we looked at a little bit last week, but I want to give it a running start for those of you who weren't here um, for that part of the series. What we've got here is we're wrapping up, when we come to verse 16, we're wrapping up what's called a genealogy, this long list of names. And one of the things that, one of the many things that made Matthew's list unique is that he included women in it. He included women. That was very unconventional for the day. And every time he included a woman's name, there was more to the story. There was more to the story. So people were going to be a little on edge. Readers would be a little on edge when they came to this part, Matthew 1.16, that says Joseph was the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. So there's a signal going up here. This is not going to be a conventional birth. And it wasn't, was it? Those of you who know the story, let's pick it up at uh, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I'm really glad I'm not a translator for a whole lot of reasons, but this one would be really tough, this verse, to translate this from Greek into English, or as they believe may have happened from Hebrew to Greek to English. This is a challenging verse to translate. It's challenging because this idea of betrothal that they talk about here is very different than our tradition surrounding engagement. They were very different things. Generally speaking, the parents of a young man in that time and in that place would choose a young woman for their son. The young woman was usually between the ages of 12 and 14. Remember that. And the young man was usually between the ages of 18 and 20. Remember that also. Well, betrothal was a really, really Really big deal. Really big deal. It was a covenant that you entered into before witnesses. It was a legally binding contract that could only be broken by a formal process of divorce. One of my sources said that if you were betrothed and you died, you would become a widower or a widow. Well, although Mary and Joseph were legally pledged to one another because they were betrothed, the marriage itself wasn't consummated till a seven-day wedding celebration normally that took place about a year later. 
If Mary or Joseph and Joseph saw each other before the wedding, it would have been customary to have a chaperone present. I came across this in my research this week, just so my kids don't think I'm making this up. Here's what it says in the IVP background commentary. Premarital privacy between betrothed persons was permitted in Judea, but apparently frowned upon in Galilee. So Mary and Joseph may well not have been, had any time alone together at this point. So dad, two girls, I think that's a great idea. Can I get an amen? All right. Oh. Hallelujah. Do we even get a hallelujah? Did I hear that? Oh, my word. Well, Matthew reveals that Mary conceived during the betrothal, and they had never been together. And here's what Joseph chose to do, verse 19. Her husband, they call her husband, that's what they considered during the betrothal period. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And I'll tell you right now, I don't have the words to describe what a God-honoring response that was from Joseph, who again was probably about how old? 18 to 20, probably in his teens. Men, what we're going to look at right now sets the bar for us. This is how we should treat women. Let's dig in. Here's the situation Mary found himself, or Joseph found himself in. Joseph was a just man, and he was unwilling to put Mary to shame. This wasn't either or. This was both and. Joseph was a just man. He was a man of conviction. He was committed to honoring the word of God. And as a man of conviction, marrying Mary no longer was an option for him. At least so he thought. Joseph, again, was a just man. And so we read things like this. Here's one of the ways one of my, one of my sources put it. It says this. He cannot, Joseph cannot follow through and marry her because that would condone what he thinks is Mary's sin of adultery. Divorce for adultery was not, was not optional, but mandatory among many of the groups in ancient Judaism because adultery produced a state of impurity that as a matter of legal fact dissolved the marriage. Again, you got to remember, if you've, if you've already read this story before, you got to remember at this point in the story, Joseph doesn't have this dream that we're going to see in a little bit. He thinks Mary's been unfaithful to him. So he believes that she's an adulteress. And so she's unfaithful not only to the vows that she made before Joseph and other witnesses, he believes that she has been unfaithful to the vows that she made before God. If Joseph is to remain true to his convictions, Joseph can't marry her. And if he's going to do the right thing, he has two remaining options. Option one is to outmarry publicly, to go before the community and say, this is on her, all of it. It's all on her. If Joseph chooses option one, he can maintain his reputation, he can maintain his status as a righteous man. But if he chooses option one, Mary's life is over. Possibly literally, because there were Old Testament laws that said the, the, the consequence, the punishment for adultery was what? It was death by stoning, yeah. Now, it appears as though that wasn't happening much in Palestine in the first century. It was more rare. But even if Mary wouldn't have been killed, which still was a possibility, Mary's life is still over. It's over. Because she's a 13-year-old, unwed mother, who now has been shunned by her community, shunned by her family, 
and has nowhere to go. Because Joseph was a man of conviction, he couldn't ask God to bless a marriage that went against what God had revealed in his word. But he also had compassion on someone that he believed had cheated on him and had broken her vows to God. He had compassion on her. And so he went with option two. He had another option. There was a provision in the law that allowed for a private divorce that required only two witnesses. This appeared to be the only option where Joseph could both maintain his convictions and save Mary from public disgrace. So thinking about this, how old again was Joseph? 18 to 20. So flip the difference. He's 19. Think of the 19-year-olds that you know or knew. Does this sound like most of them? Wow. Think of the integrity that this guy has. And guess what? It's about to go up from there. His decision, as hard as this was, it's about to get even harder. It's going to get more costly. Let's keep reading. Picking up with verse 20. But as Joseph considered his options, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel says, don't fear. You know why? Because the stakes just because now he doesn't have option one or option two. He's off the grid on this thing. Doing the right thing will result in Joseph being disgraced and shunned. Because this isn't 21st century Minnesota that we're reading about. This is first century Galilee. If Joseph does in that time, in that place, what God asks him, him to do, if Joseph acts, acts with both conviction and compassion... The reputation that Joseph worked his entire life to earn will be gone, and you'll never get it back. And we see this in the scriptures. We see it. If we fast forward, we can see what happened to Joseph's reputation. We looked at this verse last week, at least one of the two verses we're looking at right now. A hometown crowd had, that witnessed Jesus saying and doing astounding things said this about the son of Joseph, 30 years later. This happened 30 years later. And this is what they say about Jesus. Then they scoffed. They scoffed. They said, this is just the carpenter's son. And they were deeply offended. And they refused to believe Jesus because of his daddy. From the perspective of those who thought they knew Joseph, Joseph was a misfit. A somebody doesn't come from a nobody. And Joseph was a nobody. And nobody had had a reputation. Nobody is standing up for Joseph. You read this account, nobody's standing up for him. Nobody's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't be trashing Joseph's reputation. This was a man of integrity. This is a man who angels appeared to not once, but at least twice. This is a man who took a bold, bold made a bold decision. This is the son of a man who was near the center of it all when God revealed himself to shepherds and those mysterious magi. There's none of that. There's none of that. One of the things that jumped out at me this week was the fact that the angel referred to Joseph as the son of David. That must have hurt when they said those words to Joseph. 
There's some painful irony in that greeting, isn't there? Especially in light of what Matthew had already highlighted. Matthew 1.6 said this about David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So I'll be honest. If this were me, I'm in that situation, I'd be having some hard conversations with God. Only they wouldn't really be conversations. They'd be me telling God all the mistakes that he's making and how he should do things. Anyone else been there? If I had, it had been me and not Joseph, I might have responded like this. God, this dream that I just woke up from, this dream is going to shatter all the dreams that Mary and I had. I didn't repeat David's sin. You know this. That was him. Mary and I, we've done everything right. And if I'm truly the righteous heir to David's throne, why make me the stepdad? Why? You don't have to do that. Your chosen one could be a son of David by blood. He could be. And there'd be no hint of scandal. God, you know I'm committed to doing the right thing. Why does this have to be the right thing? When God chose Joseph, God chose a man with unconventional character. Because we have no hint that Joseph said anything like that. Martin Luther once said that the battlefield is where the loyalty of the soldier is proven. Joseph is found faithful as we read on. Here's what happened. The angel continued, verse 21. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The name Emmanuel only appears three times in the entire Bible. This is the only place where it is directly appropriated to Jesus. We're going to press into that in a couple weeks. What I'd like to remain focused on right now is how Joseph responded to this decision that was before him. And a quick aside, if you want to see how Mary responded, Take a look at Luke, because Luke zooms in on that part of the story. So we've got them both. And I, you can make a strong case that she not only was as courageous as Joseph, she might have been even more so. When God revealed through his messenger something that very few people knew about, both Mary and Joseph took a courageous step of faith. Even though that step of faith was not only costly, that step of faith appeared to defy logic. Over the course of this series, we're going to look at multiple misfits. Each of them were unique, but here are two things that they had in common. There's a place to write this in your notes. Matthew's misfits had two things in common. One, they saw something that other people missed. That was one of the things they had in common. And number two, when they saw it, they took a courageous step of faith in that direction. If you choose to become an authentic follower of Jesus... God is going to open your eyes to all kinds of things that others don't see. And he's going to ask you to respond in ways that most people won't understand. It's easy to do the right thing when the right thing is easy to do. Right? It doesn't take any moral courage to throw your aluminum can in a recycling bin. Right thing to do? No blowback on that. 
There's no longer any social stigma for showing compassion to the poor and the marginalized. In fact, religious and non-religious people will applaud you for that, and rightfully so. But, if you're a teen, there's going to be times when it feels like everybody else is going to that movie. Everyone else is listening to that song. Everyone else is playing that game or doing things with their boyfriend and girlfriend that just aren't right. And if you make a decision to do the right thing, you end up getting shunned for doing the right thing. If that's you, welcome home. Welcome home. We'll stand with you. Is that true, adults? We'll stand with you. And if you're a parent, speaking of adults, there's going to be times in your life you're called to set boundaries that it seems like no one else is setting. And not only will you get blowback from your, your kids, but it's amazing how much pushback you get from coaches, teachers, other parents for trying to do what's right. If that's you, welcome home. If you're in the working world, huh, there are going to be moments when those around you will pressure you to compromise for profit. They'll pressure you to try to cover up something that shouldn't be covered up. And doing the right thing in those situations can cost you a promotion. It can cost you respect. It can cost you your job. And if that's you, welcome home. Or maybe, just maybe, when you look out there perhaps on social media or something, you might see that there's some people who are a little hyper-partisan, perhaps. A little polarized out there. And they're going at each other, perhaps a little stronger than they need to be. And let's just say, you try to speak in and say, you know, maybe it's not like you see it. Maybe it's not like you see it. Maybe you should even try to talk together. You ever tried that? Very often, those attacks that were aimed at each other, where do they get aimed at? Because you're not picking their side. There's times where trying to do the right thing to be a peacemaker can end you, put you on the wrong side of, of their wrath. If that's you, welcome home. One of the things I know that many of you experience on a regular basis are those times where you're trying to do the right thing and it's the religious people who are coming at you. Those times where, where they're trying to get you to endorse a behavior that they think is right, but the scripture doesn't agree with their position. And there's other times. There's people they want you to enable them. Let's just call it what it is. And you know that that's not right. And what do they say often in those moments? They'll look you in the eye and they'll say, I thought you said you were a Christian. Anyone else ever heard that before? when what you're trying to do as best you can is to try to be like Christ. If that's you, welcome home. There's a place to write this in your notes. If you've ever been shunned for doing the right thing, you're not alone. That's been the history of Christianity since Christ, since before Christ. If you've ever been shunned for doing the right thing, you're not alone. In our next series after this one, we're going to be pushing into the topic of prayer, and it's not going to be just a feel-good, easy, light series. We're going to press into prayer. And so we're doing some pre-reading in, in advance of that series, and I came across this prayer of a guy 
who gets this kind of criticism. Maybe you can relate and identify with this prayer. He writes this. He says, Father, I'm weary of being misunderstood. I'm tired of the ungracious scrutiny of others. Keep me from people who speak about me but not to me. I am helpless against the riptide of their words. I cannot defend myself. And he doesn't stop there. He goes to this courageous place. He says, refresh my heart to look on them with love. I accept this part of your cross. Change my heart to speak with your love and sculpt my life through these situations. Let their hard words chisel away my roughness, forming Christ. If you'd like me to send you that prayer, just shoot me an email or uh, let me know on a connection card and we'll be sure to get that your way. And beyond that, if you're in one of those situations, if you're in one of those situations where you are facing a hard choice that's the right one and you'd like people to pray with you, we'd be honored. Just let us know because you're not alone in this. And beyond anything that we can do, when we think of you're not alone, if there's ever someone who gets you, it's Jesus of Nazareth. It's him. His entire life was devoted to doing the right thing and serving others sacrificially. And here are the kind of things that his critics said about him. For John, meaning John the Baptist, neither came eating nor drinking, and they said, he's got a demon. Well, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Did Jesus know what it was like? Feel the sting of criticism? Yeah. But he chose to walk by faith in spite of it. And when I think about the life Jesus lived, he reminds me a lot of his father. And this time I'm not talking about his heavenly father. Who am I talking about? Doesn't he sound a lot like Joseph? In the eyes of the world, Joseph was a misfit. But when you do a deeper dive, when you consider the trials and tests and accusations that Joseph's son Jesus would face in this world, when you consider the number of times that Jesus would see things that no one else saw and then take a courageous step in that direction, could you imagine a better father, a better mentor, a better example than Joseph? I can't. I was really struggling um, on how do you land the plane this week. And as I was praying and wrestling, this phrase came to mind. There's a place to write this in your notes. Misfit is a relative term. Misfit's a relative term. God knew exactly what he was doing when he chose Joseph. Just like God knows what he's doing when he chose you. And as I say those words, that's not just me trying to give platitudes. That might, might be trying to be clever. That's the truth. He knew what he was doing when he chose you. When he allowed you to be in the situation that you're in now. The word of God says you're his workmanship. You're created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. God is the one who placed that kid in your life. He's the one. He's the one that put you on that team. He's the one that has you in that neighborhood, in that school, in that office. He has you in the role that you're in now, facing the choice that's before you. There's no surprises with him. And as we bring part two of this series to a close, here's the challenge. Will you dare 
to be courageously consistent in that role? Will you dare to be courageously consistent? It's easy to do the right thing when the right thing is easy to do. Will you dare to do the right thing when the right thing is hard? Will you stand with conviction when conviction will cost you? Will you stand with compassion when everybody else is throwing stones? One of the key themes in the book of Matthew is that God is at work. He's fulfilling his promises in unexpected ways and in unexpected places and through unexpected people. Will you dare to trust that God can use your courageous acts of faith even if those acts are going to make you stand out like an orange tree in a white forest. We can only speculate as to why God allows these things. Perhaps he knows that as you're trying to walk by faith, there's others who are watching you. And he knows that either in a moment or over time, your actions are going to make a difference in their life. Could be that. It could be that God knows there's danger ahead. And by asking you to take that courageous choice, you're going to find out later the courageous choice saved you from going over a cliff. It might be that. It could be that God's going to do a miracle. And this courageous step of faith that he's asking you to take, you're going to see a mountain move that wouldn't have moved otherwise. Maybe this test is part of a bigger plan. And right now it looks like this massive test You're going to go through it, and there's going to be a bigger one on the other side that this one prepared you for, where the stakes are higher. Maybe God is using this challenge to refine you. In fact, that's almost always the case, isn't it? Where that challenge is purifying your heart, your mind, chiseling away the roughness, forming Christ. We may not understand why God is asking us to do what he asks us to do. But if the word of God reveals anything, it reveals that God truly is at work in mysterious ways. So this Christmas, will you follow in the footsteps of Joseph, whose eyes were opened to something that most people missed and who took a courageous step of faith in that direction. God asked Joseph to take Mary to be his wife, a woman who appeared to have been unfaithful. As courageous as that was, how much more breathtaking is the decision that his son made. And that was to betroth himself to his bride. Who is that? The church. So we want to give you an opportunity as we bring this, this message here to a close to respond. And we're going to do that through something we call Holy Communion.